0: Amen, amen. What what a wonderful truth, what a powerful way to praise God and remember who he is and who we are in him, amen. I'm going to ask first through sixth graders who would like to go with Pastor Susan and her helpers to make their way for children's worship. And uh, we're so thankful for those that invest in the lives of children. They had a wonderful Valentine's party yesterday and uh, they seem to be very excited today, Pastor Susan. Uh, They're just almost as excited as the grown-ups in here. Uh, So, amen. (laughs) Thank you, Phil and Gianna, for that cheer back there. Yeah. Well, today, uh, two teams, two NFL football teams will face each other, uh, and some see it as a contest between two quarterbacks, the younger, one of uh, quarterback of the Chiefs uh, will uh, defend his title uh, that he won last year and so there are some people that are cheering for him and and, uh, and and wanting the Chiefs to win and then there's Tom Brady the older guy the more experienced guy who's hoping for a seventh Super Bowl ring that's crazy seven Super Bowl rings and so uh, these are star quarterbacks but As phenomenal as his players are, they are part of a team. They rely on the performance of the team. And so in my estimation today, as I watch the game, I will watch for the team that is together, that is coordinated, that is unified around their quarterback and will help that quarterback do what he needs to do. And the team that will seem uh, disjointed and disorganized and lack of coordinated will probably lose because I'm convinced that talent and unity can lead to victory while talent and disunity can lead to defeat. Jesus said it this way. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. We're following Paul in the homestretch, the last part of his life in the book of Acts. And Paul has returned to Jerusalem, and he has faced trouble. He, he's had a hard time in what would be considered his home. There was a huge riot that broke out, and people almost killed him. He was saved by a Roman soldier. He was arrested, and thus his life was saved. And now he faces uh, the, the next step of what's going to happen. And as we look at this, we'll see that the religious establishment in Jerusalem will show signs of division. And I see it as a bad example of what can happen to the church today. And so that's why I've entitled the message A House Divided. So let's go to where we picked up, where we left off last Sunday in the book of Acts chapter 22. We'll go to the very last verse, verse 30 of of Acts 22, and we'll pick up the story there. And it reads like this. talking about the Roman commander that had arrested Paul. Since says, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So there's this Roman commander that has arrested Paul and he's not sure of what the crowd is accusing him because the crowd doesn't make sense. They're they're angry, they're crazy. And while Paul is talking to the Roman soldiers, Paul reveals to them that he's a Roman citizen And this makes the Roman commander really nervous because as a Roman citizen, they had to follow due process. He had rights as a citizen. So he's afraid of doing something. He can't just keep him if he doesn't know what he's accused of. And so what he decides to do is, he says, look, I'm not gonna take him back to the crowd because the crowd couldn't help me, but I'm gonna take him to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the people who are in charge of the house of God the Supreme Court of Judaism, if you would. It was a council of elders made up of of rabbis and and priests and, and other religious people. And he says, they can help me decide what this man has done wrong so that then I could do what I'm supposed to do. Now, if you are on the side of the religious leaders, of the Jewish religious leaders, This is a perfect opportunity for them to get rid of Paul. This is a perfect opportunity for them to bring their case, to to join their, their forces and their voices as one, and to accuse Paul of whatever they want to accuse him in such a way that the Romans would kill him. Just like they did with Jesus of Nazareth, how they demanded his crucifixion. But that's not what ends up happening here. Let's see why. Uh, We jump now to to chapter 23, beginning with verse 1, and it reads like this. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul begins to make his defense before this Jewish court called the Sanhedrin. But one of the high priests orders Paul to be struck in the mouth and Paul becomes angry because that's illegal to do. And he calls him a hypocrite. He says, here you are upholding the law and you're breaking the law. You're one of those who wants to be such a stickler for the letter of the law, but you don't think it applies to you. And he didn't realize that the order had been given by the high priest and when they bring that to his attention, he sort of backs off and he said, man, the Bible says that you should not uh, disrespect the office even if the wrong person occupies the office. But what Paul really realizes here is that the court is stacked against him. That these people have already made up their minds. They're not interested in the truth. They're just interested in getting rid of Paul. So any kind of logic is not going to work. Paul has already told his story. Paul has already proclaimed the gospel to the entire multitude, but that didn't work. And so now Paul realizes that he needs to change his tactic. God gives him wisdom in that moment to leverage the composition of the Sanhedrin in his favor. Look at what happens in verse 6. It says, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers... I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up, and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Paul capitalizes on a division that existed in the Sanhedrin. See, the Jewish court, this this religious court of elders was made up of primarily two religious parties in Judaism. One was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were zealous of the law. They were the ultra-conservatives, if you would. They did not want anybody to break the law. They didn't want anybody to change the law. In fact, they made rules to protect the law. And they made rules to protect the rules that protected the law. They built fences around fences around fences so that the law would never be changed. And they were so proud of their Jewish heritage that they wanted nothing to do with Greek culture or Roman culture. They, they protected their, their ethnicity, their, their national identity. Those were the Pharisees. They might have been considered the middle class people of the day. Now the Sadducees, they were elitists. They were the upper Cost, if you would. They, they were the sophisticated, the educated ones. They were all educated, but 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 the Sadducees were educated in a particular way, and and they they were open to Greek culture, they were open to Hellenistic influence. And the Pharisees believed that one day God would raise the righteous from the dead. And they believed in spirits and they believed in angels, but the Sadducees. They were not concerned with the afterlife. They were not concerned with with the spiritual realm. They they were just concerned with the things of earth. They observed Judaism as a very earthly thing, the temple and, and, and what God required of them in the temple. So they had different beliefs. They had different positions. They had differences. But somehow the Pharisees and the Sadducees got along in order to, because they believed in the same God, They believed in the same Bible, the Torah, or the law of Moses, and they managed to work together to advance the causes of Judaism in Jerusalem and beyond. But Paul knew their differences. Paul's message included the resurrection of the dead. And it wasn't a side issue. Central to the gospel was the fact that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified have been buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And so, what Paul does is he, he highlights the resurrection because he knows it's a controversial issue in the Sanhedrin. He, he essentially throws a resurrection grenade at the court. He says, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. I come from a pedigree of Pharisees. We believe the resurrection, and I'm here because I believe in the resurrection? Very short defense. It's not untrue, but just enough for the court to get preoccupied with this divisive issue among them. Paul just happens to be able to turn the attention of the court from him to each other. And things got heated quickly. Things went wild quickly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees turned from accusing Paul to attacking each other. They raised their voices. They called each other names. People, people can do that very well sometimes. They started offending each other because of their difference of beliefs. I would give anything to watch Paul's face on that moment. Popping, eating popcorn, you know. Here he was the one being accused and all of a sudden these people that are supposed to destroy him are fighting against each other. So then the Pharisees who, who, who now identify with Paul, first they hated him, now identify with him because they believe in the resurrection. Now they have a common enemy with the Sadducees. Now start defending him. Isn't that great? Now they say he's innocent. In fact, they say something really interesting. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Wow, what a crazy idea. What if Paul is really on God's side? What, what if God has really spoken to Paul and, and he's telling the truth? That's a strange possibility. When Paul's case was brought before the Jewish court on that morning, the, the most sure outcome would be that he would be accused of a crime and probably sentenced to death. But now the house is divided. And Paul didn't create the division in the Sanhedrin. Paul just noticed the crack. Most houses that fall apart have had cracks for a long time. And sometimes it just takes one person to capitalize on that crack. Jesus said if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So the first thing I draw from our story today is that division distracts us from God. That when God's people are divided against each other, they are distracted from what matters most. Just like the Sanhedrin on that day had an objective and they were distracted from their objective, the church can be distracted from what God wants to do when we let division take its place. Alan Hirsch and Mark Nelson have referred to this as an eclipse of God. They say this, an eclipse of God occurs not because God moves away from our sight, but rather because objects, ideas, and idols insert themselves into our viewpoint, obscuring our capacity to view God in all his fullness. Sometimes we've allowed a portion of our beliefs that's important, but it's a portion of it to become so large that it blocks our view of God. Sometimes we we focus on the small things that divide us that that we are not seeing God just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees had not been able to see. One of the saddest realities for me today is how many churches split and the reasons that they split over. I mean, sometimes they're big reasons. Sometimes they're not big. Some churches fight over the color of the carpet. Some churches fight over what hymn book they're going to use. I was in a church once that, that I thought was a great church and then I went to a business meeting and they had a big fight about the Sunday morning schedule. There was a group that believed that Sunday school should begin at 9.15 and the other group believed that it should begin at 9.30. A 15 minute difference. And they were angry at each other. And they were upset and they wouldn't talk to each other for a long time. And I said, what a crazy thing, but It happens. It reminds me of of a church in East Texas. Anybody here from East Texas? Church in East Texas, uh, where it was a small church and uh, someone brought to a business meeting of the church that they wanted to buy a chandelier. And there was an opposing group. And uh, and the, the spokesperson for the opposing group stood up and said, Pastor, I'm opposed to the motion of buying a chandelier because ain't nobody here know how to spell it. And so how are we gonna know how to order it? And I said, and if we did order it, no one here knows how to play it. And besides, what we really need here is more light. You know, it's, it, it's, it's like, did you hear about the Sunday school class that, that was fighting about Adam's belly button? Did you hear about that? They were like, well, did Adam have a belly button or not? They said, well, the Bible says that, man, that Adam was the first man. If all men have belly buttons, then Adam had to have a belly button because he, we're all like him. And so obviously, if you really believe the Bible, then you would know that Adam has a belly button. And somebody said, well, Adam wasn't born of a woman, so he didn't have an umbilical cord. So maybe he didn't have a belly button. So do you believe the Bible that God created Adam and not that he was born of a woman? If you really believe the Bible, then you know that Adam doesn't have a belly button. And I'm thinking, the Bible doesn't care whether Adam has a belly button or not. But sometimes we argue about things that the Bible doesn't care about, but we think it matters. See, when we major on the minors, we get distracted from what really matters. We get distracted from God. William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at the things that don't matter. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid at succeeding at the things that don't matter. Division distracts us from God. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. The the Jewish religious court on that day got distracted from their main objective, While the Pharisees among them admitted that maybe they were missing God in their view, uh, they they still had trouble. Look, Look what happens in verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Their infighting continued. Even when the Pharisees said, He's innocent, they continued to spew things at each other and it became violent. It became so violent that the Roman commander was concerned. Check this out. The Roman commander, he's seen a lot of blood. He's seen a lot of war, but he's concerned about what these religious leaders are doing that Paul might get hurt. You know, when the military has to intervene to have someone's life, to save someone's life from church people, you know something's gone wrong, right? And this is what happens here. Paul's life has been in danger since he got to Jerusalem. There's been riots and there's been accusations and there's been attempts on his life. But but now this destruction that is imminent is not because of what he believes, it's because of division. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And the second thing that I draw from this story is that division destroys people that God loves. Sometimes we make the issues that we're so passionate about more important than people. Sometimes our zeal for the things that we really believe, for our convictions is so strong that it becomes destructive. There's nothing wrong with having convictions. There's nothing wrong with having differences. There's nothing wrong with taking a side on issues, but sometimes that becomes so large that, that it becomes destructive to other people. Matthew Skinner wrote a book on on the book of Acts, and he says this, if our convictions leave broken bodies in the wake, or if our pursuits of our religious values and prerogatives snuff out people's vitality in other ways, then we are almost certainly doing something wrong. I wonder how many times people have been hurt by our divisions, how many times people in church have been discouraged because of our infighting? As a pastor, for many, many years, there's been too many times when people sit in my office with emotional scars of fights and divisions in church. It breaks my heart and I'm pretty sure it breaks the Father's heart. Division destroys people that God loves. I, I ran into a proverb this week that, that was a good reminder. Proverbs 23, says, it is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. You know the one thing that ought to characterize followers of Jesus is our love for one another. God wants us to love our brothers and sisters more than we love our preferences, more than we love our own labels. God wants us to love the people that he died for, the people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We sang a minute ago, I am who he says I am, I'm a child of God, well, so is your brother, so is your sister. They may not agree with you on everything, but they're a child of God too. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the same doctrinal tendencies. By this others will know that you are my disciples if you belong to the same denomination. By this others will know that you are my disciples if you agree on every interpretation of the Bible. No. If you love one another, that is the one distinctive and the opposite is true: division destroys people that God loves, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Paul's house were the Jews, but they almost destroyed him, and the Roman commander saves Paul from being destroyed by his own people. But behind the Roman commander is a bigger hand, a sovereign hand, a hand that moves, and we've Go to the last verse of our passage today, verse 11. It says, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Our divisions may cause us to miss God's purpose, but God's purpose cannot fail. We might miss out on what God is doing, but God will still accomplish his purpose. God tells Paul, listen, I know what's going on here is crazy. I know it's scary. I know you may be wondering what the outcome will be today, but let me tell you, I have a purpose for you and I'm gonna accomplish my purpose. You will be my witness in Rome and I'm gonna make sure that that happens. Now, I'm not going to give you the details of what happens between now and Rome, but you're going to make it to Rome. Because your destiny is not at the hands of the leaders. Your destiny is not at the hand of the Jews. Your destiny is not at the hand of the Romans. Your destiny is in my hands. So take courage. I have a promise for you today. Because of the hardness of the Jews in Jerusalem, they, would no longer hear the witness of Paul. Because of their division, they would not be able to experience the power of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. But Paul would still be a witness, not in Jerusalem anymore, but now in Rome. Not in the headquarters of Judaism, but now in the headquarters of the Roman Empire. And here's the third observation I want to share with you today. Division Deludes our witness to the world. Did you notice that in the entire story that we read today, God only speaks once? And what is it that he speaks about? The only time that God speaks in this story, does he address the resurrection or the spirits or the angels or the Pharisees or or any of that? You know, the only thing he addresses is Paul's testimony. You know what's a big deal to God? Is our witness to a broken world. He gives Paul a promise, he says, you are going to be my witness because that's what matters to me and I'm gonna make sure it happens. What Jesus desires of us most is that we would be powerful witnesses to the world. When we get caught up in our divisions, we dilute our witness. When the world looks at the church and the church is infighting and split and divided, the world says, I don't need the church to experience division and brokenness. There's plenty of that in the world. The church ought to stand out in unity in a world that is so divided. The church ought to be the difference in a broken world. The most natural thing for sinful humanity to do is to divide. It is natural for a sinful nature to highlight the differences, to alienate people, to call others names. But it is the power of the gospel that makes us different. It is the power of God and his love at work in us that says, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We may have different color skin. We may have different denominational preferences. We may have different worship preferences. We may speak a different language. We may have a different political party, but we are one in Christ. We have been saved by Christ. We have been redeemed by Christ. Our identity is found in Christ. That was the primary petition of the Lord's Prayer. I'm not talking to our Father, but Jesus' prayer the night before he died. Do you remember that prayer in John chapter 17? Do you remember what Jesus asked of the Father? John 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus is about to die, and he prays, My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now he's praying for you and me. Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them, even as you have loved me. Isn't it interesting that the petition of Jesus right before his death, as he prayed for you and me, is that we would be one, as he and the Father is one. That we would come to complete unity so that the world would know that God sent Jesus. Jesus prayed that the church would be one as he and the Father are one because it gives credibility to him. When the church is united, it gives witness to Jesus. When the church is divided, it dilutes its witness of Christ. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. I had the opportunity this week as an officer of our convention to meet with some pastors in Galveston. We, we uh, called a meeting of several pastors from different areas of Galveston and Houston. And uh, it wasn't a very large group, but it was representative of African-American churches and Anglo churches and Hispanic churches and Asian churches of different sizes. And as we talked to them and and checked on how they were doing during this difficult year, uh, one of them stood up and said, you know, during this time that there's been so much craziness in our world and there's been racial tensions and there's been political division and there's been a pandemic, Our people have said, pastor, where do we stand? What do we do about this? Is what we've done here, those pastors that were gathered, what we've done is we've sat down together and we've had honest conversations. Different races, sometimes different conventions, different size of churches, different persuasions, but we've had conversations, we've swapped pulpits and we've modeled to our church that we have something to be united about. that there are many things that the world would want us to be divided on, but the one thing that brings us together is Jesus Christ. The fact that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he loves sinful humanity. And I thought, what a great example. What a great model of these pastors and churches (laughs) that came together in spite of their differences to say we can be united around Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that when it is all said and done, when my life is over and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I really believe that God is not going to ask me what was my denomination. He's not going to ask me for my college or theology degrees from seminary. He's not going to ask me for the programs that we had at church or for my preferences in worship style. He's not going to ask me if I sang in English or Spanish. I'm pretty sure that what he'll care about is, did you love me as your Lord and Savior? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? and did you tell the world that I died for their sins? At the end of the day, what God really cares about is the great commandment and the great commission. Everything else might be important, but it is not what holds us together. It is not what matters most to the Father. Jesus said, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. In a world that is deeply divided, we need a church that's uniquely united. The world has an excuse for being divided. They don't know Jesus. But we have a reason to be united. We have been transformed by the powerful love of Jesus Christ, and it makes a difference. So church, let's be united around Christ. I'm gonna ask you to stand and I wanna invite you to consider answering Jesus's prayer. Have you ever thought about that? How can you be an answer to Jesus's prayer that we would be one? Well, let me suggest three things as I prepare to walk away. Number one, let love for others guide you Let love for others guide you in your decisions, in your attitude, in your disposition. Two, let Christ define you. We sang, I am who he says I am. Don't let the other labels define you. Don't let the world define you. Don't let the labels that divide others define you. But let Christ define you. And then third and final, let God's promises sustain you. Know that he has a purpose and he will fulfill his purpose through you in spite of everything else. He gave a promise to Paul and his promise is yours too. As we sing and as we respond today, I want to invite you to ask forgiveness of God for whatever you've done that has alienated you from him or from others. Then I want to invite you to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We will partake of the bread and the vine, the cup, and it reminds us that we are one. Let's sing and then let's celebrate.